At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 726th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. This is part two of a very special episode for us today on the Urban Farm Podcast, as we had so much great conversation that we decided to split Rose interview in two. We have a member of the first generation of what we now call the permaculture movement. She is someone who shares her experiences and teaches about restoring planetary health. We're talking to Rosemary Morrow about the Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. Rosemary is a permaculture teacher, author, speaker, and agricultural scientist. She has spent decades traveling the world, designing healthy living systems, and applying permaculture as a practice to restore our planetary health. She has worked locally across Australia as well as globally with farmers and villagers in Africa, Central and Southeast Asia, people of war-torn nations such as Vietnam and Afghanistan, and communities experiencing the serious effects of climate change like the Solomon Islands. Her latest book, Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture, brings together 40 years of evidence-based approaches to guide us towards the regeneration of our Earth. Endorsed by the United Nations as a tool for their decade on ecosystem restoration, this book shares how communities, cities, workplaces, and governments can collectively and positively shape our futures. Janice did something a little different for this interview with you. She reached out to some of our friends in the permaculture community and said, if you could talk to Ro, what would you ask her? So I'd like to ask you a few of these questions. <laughs> Let's go. Ray says, how can we get the permaculture movement to be more mainstream for the masses and share in the positive impacts? Mm, Look, the way that I've learned so far is work with your local government area. State Mm. governments are too big and too political. The most responsive unit is your local government. Perhaps you call it a shire or a parish. I don't know what the local word is. But where you can go along to the meetings and you can sit there, where you can have input into local development plans, where you can get the urban framework changed, where you can get them demand they put in water-sensitive landscapes. It's the local government areas that are changing faster than states and nations. Wow. And that is where we need to be because we can build strength and we can build in change at that level reasonably quickly and well, and then it feeds out. We probably can't teach everyone permaculture, though I think it's a terrific idea, uh, but we can get the changes we want. So here we want urban-sensitive landscape. We want every street shaded because that black tarmac is such a contributor to global warming when it's hot. 
Okay, we get leaves, we'll put up with leaves, they're organic matter. You know, we want to slow the traffic. We want all electric cars. And once you get your shire to lead, you're on the way to the people will come with you. Nice. That's that's my thinking. That's where we can work effectively as individuals and groups. Yeah. Nice. Kristen wants to know, how do you keep yourself motivated when so many people don't participate in earth care? I think I can see need. I can see need for a course or need for a book or need for something. And I think that would be helpful. And it's missing at the moment. And Mm -hmm. let's plug the hole. And in a way, I teach like that too. When people have got the knowledge, then I think about the bit they haven't got. So they might all know about making compost. They may not know enough about humus and how it holds water and holds nutrient. So plugging the gaps. So that, that's where I am at the moment. I can't take on the whole world. I'm one person. <laughs> I prefer to work where there's greatest need, and that is refugees and war-torn zones. But that's yeah. my choice because I'm a Quaker as well. So it's logical. Oh, mm. Very good. <clears throat> Greg S. wants to know, if you could ask each homeowner in America to do one thing to enhance their yard in a permaculture way, what would it be? Well, I think it has to be grow a garden. Oh. <laughs> Provide for your kitchen, grow a kitchen yep. garden. I think because if you take your class, Greg, and you say, give me 10 reasons to grow a garden, they give them to you and say, well, give me 10 more. They give you 10 more and say, give me 10 more. So it's everything from trucks off the road and packaging and distribution and flavours and survival and emergency and sharing cost. And that's not even starting when they get into the deepest stuff of the huge ownership of seed and the big companies. And once you get people thinking, the biggest difference would be if we grew more food. And that's going to increase biodiversity because we're going to have our gardens and more more, more like an insect zoo. We've got yes. conversation with our neighbours. We've got sharing. It just promotes so much good that I think that's the thing I'd say is grow more food. <laughs> grow a garden. Grow a garden. Love garden. it. Love it. Love it. Grow love a garden. it. Get out there. Look at the birds. Watch what comes in. You know, yep. you will become more earth literate than you thought possible. Right. <clears throat> So my, one of my mentors and longtime friends, Scott Murray, he's been on the show many times. He said, what is the key way to involve women in permaculture? Oh, look, I was just thinking the other day, where are the men in permaculture? Really? Yes. So everywhere I've been recently, and I've taught, three courses in about the last eight weeks, we've had a majority of women and they are dynamic and wonderful. We've got a couple just gone to Bangladesh to teach at the Rohingya. We've got others who have started teaching teacher training courses. I start saying, where are the men and where are the older men learning Mm. permaculture and coming forward? Where are those role models of the older men? They may have been gardeners all their life or not or come to it late. And also, we need much greater diversity. In Australia, look at Moray Gamble. Oh, yes. Quinlan. Look at Greta Carroll. I mean, you might know these. Then we look across at Sarah Abertan, 
We look at Norani in Malaysia. We look at Precious in Zimbabwe. We look at these women and say, well, where are the men? The ones who are leading, the ones who are out front doing really progressive work. We haven't got any men doing progressive work in Australia. When I look at their syllabus, I think they're all 1985 for a start. And they're not moving with the knowledge that they've got to work with. <clears throat> wow. Well, and interesting. So we do a permaculture design course in Phoenix every spring. Mm. And our spring is in February, March, April. And I was having a conversation with Janice today. And I said, we have five people signed up for the course. And she said, yeah, and they're all women. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Mm. That is interesting. Yeah. And they're also taking the lead in innovation, whereas some of the men are still teaching what they taught in 1980, perhaps. Mm -hmm. It is teaching to a changing world, but it's still the same basics for the environment and for society. That hasn't changed. But increasingly, the West has become very much about me and I and what I want. And when people say, I don't know if I want to do that, I think, well, you're lucky to have a choice. And right. that from doing it comes inspiration and motivation, not from thinking about it. Yeah. Your brain will always think 200 reasons why I should stay in this chair and eat more chocolate or chips or whatever you do. But if you get out and do it, you come back and you're actually invigorated and motivated more to go. I really think it's the doing that it has to be. Mm. And that I want to know where the men are. They're certainly not in my retired people's gym class either. Right. Wow. Yeah. And what I want to know, this is a Greg Peterson question. Over the past 20 years in Phoenix, we have taught hundreds of people in permaculture through our permaculture design courses, and not many of them have stayed engaged. How do we keep people engaged and moving forward with the permaculture conversation after they graduate from a permaculture design course? Mm, this is interesting because only colleagues can have this talk especially people who share teaching experience so mm -hmm. and there's a lack of that this thoughtful exchange I get quite lonely when I have a thought and want to share so what I'm finding is that people finish the course and are enthusiastic and often they go away and garden or do something but some do nothing I've had people five years later decide to collect all the heritage variety of vegetable plants in our area and produce a nursery. But then they often transition to some other part of permaculture. They're mm. taking on something about divesting funds from fossil fuels into something else. So they, it's like being on a tree and jumping branches, but they don't actually leave. They're still conscious of right livelihood. They're still conscious of maybe retrofitting their homes or getting finer in their reducing their carbon footstep. Something else is happening. It's a little bit like a progression. I had someone sit for 17 years and then do a basic inventory of the whole area of that thing we do about all the potential for incomes which do no damage and are basically permacultural in the area, a massive survey. I think they've also done it in northwestern US up there somewhere. But, you know, people do different things at different times. They might start off as big commercial gardeners and end up growing heritage seed 
as time and energy. And I think that's fabulous because most people possibly want to change direction at some time. What I'd like to do is survey people six months in six years and then 16 years later mm -hmm. and see what's stuck. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a good idea. That's yeah, do idea. the longitudinal study of your students and see what they're still using and doing. My sense is it could be surprising. What yes. they thought they were going to do and what they have ended up doing is different. Sometimes they end up as curators in gardens and parks or working for a local shire, but they're still using all that knowledge yeah. and they're doing something different. So we don't have any good longitudinal knowledge of our students really. We have tried for a while, and I, I lost track of it when I ran away to work with refugees instead of oh, staying home right. and following these things up. Mm. Yeah. But, yes, I think the immediate question is always full of enthusiasm and great stuff. It's a longitudinal one that is the commitment by people, witting or unwitting, that they're making to changing lives. Mm -hmm. mm? And it's at so many levels. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely see that. Kari wants to know, how do we keep up permaculture practices in our spaces as we get older? Oh, look, that's one that's challenged me a bit. So I've gone from a two-hectare farm to a small urban block here. And I'm even looking at that as being a lot of work, mainly because it's so productive. When the plums are ripe and the grapes are ripe and the kiwi fruit are ripe and everything's <laughs> ripe, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Anyway. I think I welcome it. What I have done is tend to turn more of the land over to endemic and indigenous species, our zone five. And I've been rewarded massively, not by animals living here, but animals that pass through. At any moment while I'm talking to you, I can look up and there'll be a bird after seed or a bird after a worm or a bird trying to have a go at getting a fig or something mm -hmm. in my garden. So I have provided habitat and food supply. And you know, if you're listening, Greg, we've been talking, first of all, about resilience in the yep. face of global warming. We've been talking about adaptation. And what the big word now is we will perish unless we maintain biodiversity. Yeah. And a little bit of thought about losing the pollinators or losing the soil life, which we don't understand. Suppose we lost the nitrogen fixes. What happens to all those plants across the world? They go, right. and they are key keystone species. So I think they're onto something which feels more abstract than resilience, which is, you know, I'm strong and I can endure and I'll spring back. But maybe it's more about the biodiversity and the diversity all the way through. It's just watching the edges of what the scientists are saying and shouting about, though they're not loudly heard, that I think we have to. We're about to pass some big federal legislation across Australia about biodiversity, oh, which nice. is going to be massive. Yeah, yeah, it's being framed at the moment. It's never far enough for people like me. But in my garden, I then have changed it from 60% food and 30% endemic to 60% endemic and 30% food. Oh, nice. So I've had that choice to change the area somewhat according to need. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
Andrew would like to know, how can we influence our local businesses or local municipalities to take a larger part in the permaculture system? Oh, well, what happened with our system? They decided that we, we are threatened by fires mm -hmm. very, very badly. We're in the middle of a million hectare national park of great rarity in its world heritage. And in addition, we had water that broke the railway, the bridges, took out huge landslides down the mountains and cliffs, changed the rivers, eroded everything in sight. The damage will go on for years. It's cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So the local government wants to know what to do. We can't just talk resilience because we have to have tools and strategies and techniques to put into place. We play on them by saying, let's look at better planning. Let's look at planning, which gives us the adaptation and resilience. Let's look at the planning, which says every time we build a building, it shouldn't need maintenance for 100 years, given flood or fire. Let's look at reducing our load on non-renewable resources. They mm -hmm. want, because recently in Western Australia, the local council there asked me to talk to their planners because they're all feeling uneasy about the future. You can build on the unease that people have got we're not even talking about deniers anymore. You might have the developers in there for quick buck, certainly, right. but you'll have people who are uneasy and not sure what to do. And permaculture design with its basically its own fives, fours, threes and twos have to be perennial-based plant yeah. systems. They must be to have any degree of buffering climate change as we know it managing water and even fire will come from not cutting trees, but planting the right trees. Wow, that's an interesting way to think about it. This is the big reason I love doing this podcast is because I get new, I get to learn new stuff. But zone five, four, three, and two, make them perennial. Mm. 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 Wow. Then you've just got a nice small garden full of the most fabulous food. It's really what Mollison said years ago about planting in clearings. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And just it's easy. Then you've got your grey water and you've got your organic matter to keep it going and you're doing well. You really the other is less and less work. Except for huge yields. <laughs> Which I mean I could ask some teenager around here if they want to come and pick them and sell them at the co-op. So Exactly. That's easy yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. Engaging yeah. the community. Yeah. Just put a sign outside, come and come come and pick for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People are uneasy, Greg, and that question means we say we don't have all the answers mm -hmm. and we need to work with industry and with government at various levels. And one, one way is into talking about a different future. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. Ah. Can you tell us about what you learned in regard to permaculture and rebuilding in a post-disaster zone? Mm, I'm not sure what a post-disaster zone is. All right, hold on. I can get pre-disaster. I remember that quite well. I'm hold not on quite sure about post. Well, pre-disaster is living in the world. I'm old enough to have lived in the world where you could drink water from rivers and creeks without mm -hmm. it boiling and clearing and where the environment was largely intact. 
and the oceans were clean and people said, well, they can never harm the oceans, they're so big, when the world was a simpler place. So that's pre-disaster. Post-disaster, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm sorry, we're talking about, yes, I see, sort of there's a catastrophe and the recovery time. Yes, exactly. Right, okay. I think of it in different language from you, but it's the Ah, same thing. Ah, very good. So I normally think of a rhythm, Greg, and the rhythm is there's some sort of preparation and then there's an anticipated disaster, which is pretty easy to pick mm-hmm. up on, whether you're in an earthquake zone or volcanic zone or cyclone or drought or flood or fire, then there has to be a recovery time. So you have to think of the whole cycle, not just the disaster and it's over. And there are a couple of things making this difficult. One is the disasters are following each other so quickly there's almost no recovery time. There's right. almost no post-disaster time. You go from drought to flood or from drought to fire to flood, maybe then to something else. So there is the recovery times getting slower. So what we need is much more and better planning. And that has to be done on local level by small groups of people because it's not government that saves lives, it's people. Now, local trying to get permission to set up emergency zones for people in the floods in Western New South Wales, took so long to get permission, we should have just said to the people, get the keys and do it. Yeah. And they would have gone to places where there are water tanks and food and beds and communication or something like a school that's got all that. And children would have been safe and happy and the adults could have got on with working with the disaster. So there's that immediate get through and manage. But then post-disaster, has to be going back to that sense of adaptation to a changing world. And that means watching the IPCC carefully and listening and thinking to what they're doing. I think I was so impressed when California said no more irrigation. We're going to become agriculturalists who grow with what falls out of the sky. And I thought if we all did that, we would be going back to the world of a couple of hundred years ago of where we lived within our bioregions and could live well. And you can look at the Rajasthan Desert, you can look at Australian Aboriginal people, you can look at there were certain tribes of Indigenous American people, Native American tribes, who lived well on the edge of their deserts. I featured the Middle East in my book because I think they have done so well for so many years with water systems and crops that mm-hmm. enable to live well. But we wouldn't mightn't like it. It's going to reduce our choices. You mightn't be able to have tomatoes all year. Or maybe you, you chew a nasty sort of dried fig mix for energy and nutrient. But then you get to like it, you see. Yeah. And we've got sour milk instead of Coke to drink because we're bringing in different sorts of animals for milk. It would require changes, but we could still live well and live happily the quality of life. It is going to require changes. Mm. And one of the interesting things, Larry Santoyo, he's a teacher on the West Coast of the United States. He and I were having a conversation one day and he may have even been teaching. And apparently the United States sent a crew of people down to an island that had been pretty overrun by a hurricane. 
Uh, the first thing that the crew from the United States wanted to do was clean up all the stuff and throw it away. Mm. And the people that were living there said, no, hold on here, time out. Mm. That stuff that we're going to rebuild our future with, we in the United States live in a very throwaway mm. methodology. It's just rake it up and throw them away. And his whole point was there's all of these resources after the hurricane, what are we going to do with them? How are we going to reuse them? And so that's... Well, Philippines are one of the most disaster-ridden countries in the world. They get volcanoes, earthquakes, cyclones. They've had the civil war in Marawi with the government wow. that bombed out that whole Islamic settlement and people are in camps because I've taught there. They've got the islands and ocean rise. And yet the moment there's a cyclone, they know what to do. And there's all the broken trees and wreckage and they're starting to make compost pits. They're starting to put up fences for garden beds to get food supplies going. They've got people safe. They've got children safe. And they're starting again. And they know what to do. They know how to build their houses and they don't have to ask permission. And then you go to Bangladesh and they know what to do about ocean rise. And they got a whole series of 24 different disaster strategies for cyclone wow. and ocean rise along the Bengal coast there. Absolutely brilliant. You know, we have to get these exchanges because our arrogance from thinking we've got all the answers doesn't <laughs> right. other people are already doing way ahead of us, way yeah. ahead of us. Yeah. yeah. And the local community is the one for disaster recovery every yeah. single time and they need to start beforehand know who's in the street where the children are who's on medication have they got enough who's going who's staying who's going to fight the fire who's got the boat who's got the bicycles out where the children will go where there are food supplies you know that has to be done on a local basis yeah well and, and it's not it's not difficult you just have a couple of meetings and everyone feels happy they know what to do Right. Well, and I've said for years, we can't count on the government for help no. with this. No. You know, we no. have to do it ourselves. We have to do it ourselves. There aren't enough resources for the big disasters and the disasters are too frequent and they don't know the local terrain and people. They don't know who might be in that house and they don't know where the hoses are kept or who's got the water tanks or whatever's required. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ro. It's been a pleasure, Greg. I felt it's a real conversation of colleagues and I don't oh, thank you. that because you're with new teachers a lot and they're often exactly so concerned about content. They're not really thinking about the shifting world and changes. Yeah, it's yeah. lovely. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet that I want to talk about in wrapping up is you have a new book. The yeah. reason we got you here today was the new book, Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. Tell me about the book. Okay. Well, I wrote this in a response to living and working in refugee camps for five years, and I realised that permaculture was essentially colonial. It was addressed to English-speaking in societies, mm -hmm. whether it was North America or Europe or somewhere. And although there were many Africans and some South Americans practicing, it wasn't accessible to them and it didn't speak to them. As long as you always deal with a pig or a chicken and not with a llama or a buffalo, you're not talking to anyone else, really. And I decided to write a book that was more global 
and which enabled permaculture to be practiced in a 40-story building, as they're doing in Hong Kong, or in a refugee camp, the sort I talked about with large numbers of people living in tents in degraded conditions. And we would break the rules. You would take that grey water and you'd turn it into a grey water cleaning thing and you'd grow beans along the edge of it. You'd grow them in cans and plastic bottles. I took what they do in Bangladesh and the Marsh Arabs for learning to grow food where the ocean is encroaching. And I realized marine permaculture didn't even exist. And so I looked oh, at Oh, wow. That. Yeah. Do you teach marine permaculture? Do you teach the zones going out from a port and port cities? How many port cities have you got in America? How many cities? Hundreds. How many rivers run to the sea and carry their waste? So I look at a student's design now and say, show me what the impact will be on the ocean. And that's if I'm 2,000 wow. miles inland, show yeah. me the effect on the ocean. So there's all these issues and people needed to understand patterns in nature better because that's the secret of your literacy. Mm -hmm. Looking at the landscape, understanding what the degree of degradation is and how it needs, what you need to do and is needed to change it. So I decided to write the book. I decided to take on groundwater and pumping water out and aquifers and wetlands, ocean wetlands and hanging swamps and places that just were not covered before and do it in greater depth. I decided to look at how we could work with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we need to work with others. We can't anymore say we'll provide the alternative and you look at us, we're wonderful. We actually have to work with others and work with them, infiltrate, work with them, become partners, because there's a lot of commitment there and good stuff. I think selecting traditional and cultural, where they'll take us into a different future, as I mentioned, the housing. For people who are ignored, about 3 billion people in the world living in deltas, high-rise right. buildings, 70% of people will be in cities. Cities have got to ramp up food growing the way they can't even imagine now. Who was dealing with that? Could permaculture deal with it? If not, let's just concentrate on the rich, but I wouldn't be happy about that. And if it can then let's get out materials that teachers can work with. So that was my thinking, working on the edge and moving the economy to understand the donut economy, zero growth, recycling, going for zero growth here in our local government. They're going to have a total cyclic economy. They've wow. started now. Yeah, so things are happening. It's just tuning into them. And cities and urban cities and local government are the places. This is where we can really be transformative. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. Where can we buy it at in the United oh, States? Look, it's quite simple. Meliodora.com. So that's M-E-L-L-I-O-D-O-R-A. Meliodora. Must be sweet. Honey smelling, I think it means in Greek. Um, .com. They're the best ones. And look, I rewrote all of the book and Vandana Shiva from India wrote the foreword because I oh. wanted a woman from the Global South. Yep. It's a good doorstop, Greg. It's 512 pages and weighs one and a half kilograms, I think. Oh, my gosh. It's a big book. And Rob's drawings are sensational. 
and it lends itself to translation because you can lift all the captions somehow if you know yep. the technology and can go over them. So I want it to be translatable and carefully selected vocabulary for those reasons as well. I didn't dumb it down, but just made sure I didn't use Australian idioms or terms that weren't universal. Yeah. So it was two years hard work. It wasn't that much of a joy, but it's deeply satisfying. Oh, I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Oh, well, they can go to meliadora.com. Okay. Your publisher, okay. very good. Yeah. They can go to bloommountainspermacultureinstitute.org.au. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash row. That's R-O-W-E. <laughs> oh, thank you, Greg. Yeah, you. really. That's it. Yeah, nice. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.